0: Everybody have a good week. So I'm glad you're all here this morning and we can worship together and fellowship together. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you may want to turn back to Exodus chapter 20 again. We're still working on the Ten Commandments and uh, we're working on the Seventh Commandment. We started there last week. but it. You know, I I was just reminded as I got up this morning and I was reflecting back on this, if you would like a Bible, raise your hands. If you don't have one to follow along, uh, David will make sure that you get one in your hands. We're going to be looking at a number of passages as we go through this study this morning. So you may want that or write them down, uh, take them home and study them a little later. Uh, I think it's important. But you remember the nation of Israel had just come out of Egypt. You know, I think we forget that when we read the Bible. What is the what is the context in which this was written? What is God doing? How is he ministering to these people? And uh, they just come out of the nation of Egypt, and if they didn't have some rules and regulations, there would have been chaos. Because they really didn't know how to get along with each other. They didn't know how to live. They needed some direction. And so uh, God gave the Ten Commandments, and then he expanded on those. You remember in the... Uh, In the New Testament, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Uh, Matthew 22, Mark 12, you can go back and look at that. And then he said, there's a second that's like it. You love your neighbors yourself, and so you love God, you love your neighbor. And he said, on these, all of the commandments hang. And so when we look at the Ten Commandments, they are an extension of the command to love God and to love your neighbor. And then as you go through the other commandments, 600 or so commandments in the Old Testament, you find they're an extension of the 10. And so it just all uh, kind of spreads out. But but you remember that the first four commandments, you shall have no other God before me. You shall not make any graven image. And then he talked about your language. You should not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. And then he talked about uh, the idea of having a Sabbath day, a day that's set apart to God and you need to keep that holy, that all had to do with loving God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he comes in and he begins to talk about our relationship with our neighbor. And you remember he started with the family. He said, uh, children are to are their parents. And that's not just talking about little children, that's talking about this multi-generational uh, aspect of humanity that we are to love those who are our parents and we are to honor them. And that is so important uh, in terms of the generations. And then we talked about murder and now we're talking about this idea of faithfulness because I think it's it's really important, to understand that the family is this basic unit in culture and society, and if the family unit within Israel was falling apart, the nation would fall apart they wouldn't do well and uh, God created the relationship between the husband and the wife in genesis one genesis chapter two and and we see that and He brought the woman to the man that they would have that relationship, and they were to leave mom and dad, and they were to be permanent they were to become one flesh and it was to be a permanent relationship well as we come into uh, the seventh commandment that's really what he's talking about there is that permanence that faithfulness that aspect of trust you know I think that's foundational to a good marriage it isn't what it says here it says you shall not commit adultery that's the negative side but today we talk about it as having an affair, or we talk about uh, breaking trust, or we talk about not being faithful, and, and those are kind of nicer words for adultery. People don't like us to say, oh, you're an adulterer. Uh, that's, that's not very encouraging, and so we don't use that term a whole lot in our culture and society today, we, but, but we use other terms. And if trust is broken in a relationship because of unfaithfulness boy, it's hard to bring it back. You may see a marriage that will continue on when there's been unfaithfulness, but they may struggle with that issue of trust for years to come, just because it's been broken. And sometimes it can never be restored, and as we're going to see today, that's why God gives uh, the option for the person who has been offended, their, their spouse has not been faithful to, leave that relationship. But God doesn't give us many options for that. He he says we're to remain faithful, but there is that option if your spouse is unfaithful. But adultery, unfaithfulness, it is a... It kills marriages. It kills relationships. And as relationships fall apart, it, it kills. We talked about it last week. It'll kill the society and the culture in which you live because you need that stability. Um... Faith will tell death to us part. That's what it is. Uh, commitment. You, you don't go back to the old relationships. You've got the one relationship, and, and it's until death is part. When we get married, that's what we say. I, I remember I use this illustration in my marriage ceremony sometimes. Young man went to a wedding with his mom. She wanted him to escort her. He was not married. He was probably in his mid-20s or whatever, early 30s, and, Mom was kind of giving him the hint, you know, if he goes to this wedding, maybe he'll get the hint. Maybe he'll want to get married, you know. You want to go with me? And so he went, and he was just kind of bored, you know. The pastor was up there going through the marriage ceremony and bored. And then they came to the unity candle. You know what the unity candle is? You all know that one? Yeah, where they have a big candle back here and two smaller candles on either side, and the bride and the groom go back and... They light the one candle. This represents the groom, this represents the bride, this represents the family from which they came. So his family, her family represents where they've been, they come together, they light the candle, they become one, and then they blow out the others because now they've established their own relationship. And he leaned forward, he was kind of this young man, he leaned forward and he was watching this and he was really intent on it and... His mom saw that, and she said, oh, do you know what that means? Do you know what's, what the significance of that? And he says, yeah, I know. And she says, well, what does it mean? He says, no more old flames. You see, you don't have any more old relationships coming in there. They're done. They're over. You establish the one relationship. And that's really what we're talking about this morning. Uh, we are to be faithful in that relationship, and that's God's desire for us uh, Probably most of us, when we got married—if you're married here today—said that you would be faithful till the end. Marriage, faithful till the end, till we're separated by death. And that—that uh, that was your commitment. That was certainly my commitment, and uh, I praise the Lord. Uh, that's been true for my wife and I. But it's a struggle for a lot of people. We—we we read some statistics last week, and I said that. Over a third of marriages, one or both of the partners admit to cheating. Boy, that breaks trust. 22% of men said they've cheated on their significant others. 14% of women admit to cheating on their significant other. 36% of men and women admit to having an affair with a co-worker. And I would say none of us really started out in our marriage with the intent of seeing that happen. I don't think that's the case. I think we started out with the intent that I'm going to be faithful, she's going to be faithful, he's going to be faithful. It's going to be a great marriage. And uh, we read about David and Bathsheba last week, and I don't think David really intended to be unfaithful to... He had multiple wives. To the wives when he went and had a relationship with Bathsheba, I think... The opportunity was there. He was very visibly oriented. He wasn't where he should have been. He wasn't doing what he should have been doing. It says it was the spring of the year when kings lead their armies out to war and he stayed home while the army went. And I think he was probably kind of bored. And he looked down and he saw Bathsheba and she was taking a bath on the rooftop just down from his palace and he should have walked away. Instead, he... he, wanted to know who she was and they came and told him well that's Bathsheba and she is the daughter of such and such and the wife of Uriah the Hittite one of your warriors that's out there fighting the battle and David should have walked away but he didn't i'm king i can do what i want and he took advantage and as a result a pregnancy came he lied he deceived he murdered, all because he disobeyed what God said to do. And he didn't need to. He had plenty of individuals who were there for him. And so I think that very often when we find ourselves in that relationship that is not right, and I would hope that it, it doesn't something that that you find yourself in, but I think temptation is oftentimes placed in front of people that you would say, I won't do that. But we start out with that denial. I'm not going to be one of those that's unfaithful to my wife. And uh, yet a third of individual or marriages say that one or the other have been unfaithful. So I want to just look at what God's will is today. Certainly in Exodus chapter Twenty, it says in the fourteenth verse, "You shall not commit adultery." There's the negative. That's very clear. That's just a statement, isn't it? But I want to take you to some other passages to see God's will. If you have your Bibles, turn back to First Thessalonians four. First Thessalonians chapter four, back there, uh, middle end of the New Testament. Well, it's towards the end of the New Testament, just before First and Second Timothy. And right after Colossians, you know, you got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then First Thessalonians, and First Thessalonians. The thing we know of this ver- or this chapter about so much is it talks about the, the rapture when Jesus is going to come back for his own. But before that it talks about God's will for his life. Have you ever wondered about God's will for your life? You know, what what is God's will for me? Well, we're usually talking about out there in the future somewhere, aren't we? What does God want me to do with my life? Young people are saying, what is my vocation going to be? What is my occupation going to be? Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, (laughs) he he tells us, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is what God wants you to do, pray without ceasing. Rejoice always, and everything give thanks. But he gives us another one, In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 5, and then verse 7, it says, for this is the will of God. This is what God wants for you, your sanctification. Sanctification means to be set apart. It means that we are set apart to God. We're set apart from the world. In other words, no, we're not following after the the philosophy of the world, but we're following after the things of God. This is God's will for you, your sanctification. And then he explains, that is you, that you abstain from sexual Immorality. The term there would come from porneia, which means fornication. It's any type of sexual immorality. It's really what God desires for you. For each of you know how to possess his own vessel, whether it's you're talking about your spouse or your own uh, personal individual of who you are, each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion. For the Gentiles who do not know God, like the Gentiles who do not know God. In, in other words, our lives are to be different. We are to have a different view of the physical relationship. Verse 7, it says, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but sanctification. And I think that goes along with that whole idea of you shall not commit adultery. You shall not be a fornicator, goes along with that. Although fornication is, is a relationship, and it can be... in Whether you're married or not, having an improper relationship or uh, being in the wrong place sexually, but uh, adultery has to do with a married person doing that, having a relationship with somebody else instead of their own spouse. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27 to 32, and this was Jesus speaking, it was the Sermon on the Mount, and the issue came up on marriage and what should be, our relationship to marriage. And he was speaking, and in verse 27 of Matthew 5, he says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, I want you to see how important Jesus says this is. He says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her, with intent desire, he's living something out in his mind that he shouldn't be. I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Talks about the fact that if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one part of your body than to, for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And, and Jesus is just saying there of how important it is that we keep our lives right. I'm not suggesting you go out and cut out your hand, cut off your hand, or pluck out your eye, because uh, you still have one hand and one eye left to get in trouble. So uh, I'm not suggesting you do that, but I want you to see how important Jesus said it was that we keep pure, that we be right the way God wants us to, uh, sexually, physically. It goes on down in in this passage. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of times we can judge others that, that have failed. They have fallen. And what Jesus says is don't, don't judge somebody else because even in your mind if you do that, it shows where your heart is. The heart's no different than the other person. They just went ahead and worked out what they were going to do rather than being like maybe you that just thought about it. Down in verse 31, he says, It was said, Whoever sends his wife away... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except, and here's the exception clause, except for the reason of unchastity, unfaithfulness, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Those are pretty heavy statements by Jesus. Jesus. And and sometimes I think we have watered them down extremely in our society and culture, and yet this is what God says. And so we go back there and realize that God's intent for your marriage relationship is that it be permanent, that you don't have any other relationships involved there, that you keep it where God wants it to be, and and you understand that. I'm going to go to uh, Matthew 19. Matthew 19, if you have your Bibles just a few pages over, verses um, 4 to 9, verses 4 through 9. And Jesus is speaking again, and he said to them, Have you not heard? Well, actually, let me take you to verse 3 because it sets the context. It says, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? They, they, there were actually two views in, in Judea at that time in terms of divorce. One of them was a, followed a, a rabbi by the name of Hillel, and he said that, you know, if, if your wife does anything and you're displeased with that, women didn't have the right, but men did, you just give them a certificate and send them on the way. Doesn't matter. Doesn't have to be any big thing. She burned the toast. Okay, that's all it had to be. I'm just satisfied with you. My toast is not looking good, and uh, it it wasn't a physical relationship. The other side, basically, it was if your wife is unfaithful, that was it. But no other reason. So there was a real divide here in terms of of uh, Judea at that time. And so the Pharisees were coming and they were testing him on this. And he said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? In other words, she didn't make the bed right this morning or, or whatever it was. And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother. They shall be joined to one to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so they're no longer two, but they're one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, it's not God's will that your marriage end. That we remain faithful. And he said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said, well, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. For from the beginning, it was not this been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for, and this is it, immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. God sees that as a, an issue that maybe you can't continue on in the marriage because of that, and so to divorce is permissible. Therefore, the person who has been offended... But it's never God's will that marriage ends. He wants us to have relationships that we can be secure in. He wants you to know that you can go home at night and you can be with your spouse and you can be comfortable and you can have trust. You don't have to worry when your spouse comes home late that maybe there was somebody else because they built that trust. And that's so important for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is a great passage on marriage and relationships. I just want to read the first five verses to you. Talks about the physical relationship in the marriage. Beginning with verse 1, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, it says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. They had written to Paul and they were asking him concerning a relationship of a husband and wife. They just weren't sure on things in Corinth. It was rather an immoral city. He says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. He, He suggests that maybe if you can do it, you should just be a celibate. But because of immoralities, not every person, man or woman, can do that. Because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband is to fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her, over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So there's this mutual relationship there, and it's for holding that marriage relationship together. I, I really believe um, sex is for having children, but it's also for building that oneness in the relationship. It isn't there otherwise. It says, stop depriving one another except by an agreement. Both of you need to be agreeing on this. Otherwise, if you're just saying, I'm not going to have a relationship with you, that's wrong. It says, stop depriving one another except for agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And that's the purpose, so that you can pray. And then you come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So, what I want you to understand, you shall not commit adultery, What I want you to understand this morning is even though it doesn't matter what our culture says, God's will is that we have that spouse and we be faithful in that relationship. And it's a, a permanent relationship. And so, we understand that this is God's will for us and and we strive to... Uh, see the marriage strengthened and, and become strong. Well, I want to I give you some ways to protect yourself or a fair proof or adultery proof your marriage. And uh, I think that's important. It's one thing to say, hey, you're not supposed to do that. It's another one to say, how are you going to keep from it? Uh, because temptations can come out there in the world in which we, are, we live in. And uh, I think the first thing is and some of these things are things that I did years ago. Number one is be on the alert. Be on the alert. It's when we're not alert, when we're not aware of it, when we're not expecting it that we're going to fall because all of a sudden this relationship comes with this person and you say, oh, I love her. Oh, I love him. You know, And uh, we, wanna, we want to uh, make them feel good and we want to do that which pleases them and, and we find ourselves falling into a relationship that's not right. And I know years ago, and I said it last week, um, I had to come to that point of realizing that, hey, I don't expect to ever be unfaithful to my wife. Boy, I made a commitment. I stood up there before my family, before my friends, before God, and I said, I'm going to be faithful to you for life, and I have been. But, you know, I'm thinking I'll never have a problem. But the thing is, I began to see other pastors when I got into the ministry that I thought, I really respected them. I thought these were great guys. They'll never fail. They'll never fall. And the fact is, most of them didn't expect to. And yet they failed. Howard Hendricks talked to 246 men, I believe, that had fallen to adultery to find out why. Howard Hendricks was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, And and he did a study on it. And and number one, all of them thought they would never fail. They're faithful. And they knew what the Bible said. But they put themselves in precarious positions where ultimately they did. And I thought, you know, if if those guys, guys that I respect can fall, certainly I could. And so I I said, I need to be on the alert. and I'm going to give you some things I did. But I want to read to you Uh, some directions from Solomon, the book of Proverbs. Uh, I'll I'll just read one of them, I think, Proverbs 5, 3 to 14. Uh, They're giving wisdom to their son. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may observe discretion with your lips and may reserve knowledge for the lips of the adulteress. Drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. I mean, you, you see her out there and she is such a good-looking gal and she says all the right things and makes you feel so good and wow. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. She's not the person you want to be with. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. She isn't thinking about what's important and what isn't. Her ways are unstable. She doesn't have any stability in life. She doesn't know it. She doesn't even understand that. And he says, Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Be aware of that. Be on the alert. That's really what he's saying. Don't go near her door, the door of her house, or you will give your figure to others and your years are too cruel to the cruel ones. strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien and you groan in your final end and your flesh and your body are consumed and you say oh how I hated instruction I didn't listen to dad mom I didn't listen to others my heart spurned reproof I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to the instructor's I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly of the congregation. And it goes on about talking about having a right relationship with your spouse. You can go over to chapter 6, and it talks about the young man being led as a, a bull to the slaughter or a, a beef to the slaughter because of the fact that he has the relationship wrong. And we need to understand that, that God has a designed order for your life. And it's that one person that he has for you. And you need to understand that. I, I was reading through some illustrations, and I came to a statement by uh, Dear Abby, Abigail Van Buren. She used to be in the newspaper. We don't read her. She's gone. I, I believe she's died. But uh, she wrote this one, and it was very classic. A uh, person wrote to her for advice. How many of you used to read Dear Dear Abby. How many of you have no idea who Dear Abby is? Yeah, she she was a newspaper columnist, and she uh, she was kind of a gossip lady. and, And you'd write, and you'd get her advice, and she'd give you advice. And it says, a man wrote, Dear Abby, I'm in love, and I'm having an affair with two different women. Man, this guy's got problems. I'm in love, and I'm having an affair with two different women other than my wife. Oh, Abby, I love my wife. But I love these other women, too. Please tell me what to do. Oh, but don't get me any of that morality stuff. Signed, too much love for only one. There's a guy that had a big eagle. In this case, Abby wrote a, a classic response. I want you to hear this. Dear, too much love for, anyone, for only one. I'll get that right. Dear, too much love for only one. The only difference between humans and animals is morality. Please write to your veterinarian. And uh, I thought that was kind of a classic statement and uh, a good one there. But it goes along with what we're saying here in that God says us to be, tells us to be committed to that one person. I think another thing you need to do if you want to affair-proof or adultery-proof your relationship, if you're married, sit down. This afternoon it would be a good thing and write down the consequences of your actions. I did that years ago. I thought, you know, if I'm a Christian and I love the Lord, I'm going to disappoint God. Because I'm going to break the command he gives me. Doesn't mean I won't be his child anymore, but certainly I'm not going to have the right relationship with him. I should. And so I wrote down, I, I, I don't want to disappoint God. Number two. I would disappoint myself. My self-esteem in terms of how I see myself and how I view myself would just go way down. Uh, I, I would be miserable. I think David talks about how miserable he was after his affair with Bathsheba in Psalms 32. And, and man, he, was, he couldn't sleep and he struggled before he experienced God's forgiveness again. And we need to write down, what, how's that going to affect me? Number two, number three i have a woman that i committed my life to i made a statement it is a covenant statement that is not to change that i would be faithful to her and what would that do to my wife uh, it would be devastating i have seen spouses devastated when they find that their spouse is unfaithful what could have i have done what didn't i do what what why wasn't i good enough there's all kinds of those feelings and emotions and trust is broken. I've, I've seen marriages try to come back together, and 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 some of them make it. And I praise the Lord for that because it's only God by God's power. But the person who committed adultery, they say, "Well, I'm sorry." And then two months later, they expect everything to be better. It won't be. It takes time to rebuild trust. What will it do to my kids, my daughter, my granddaughter? Because, you see, I'll probably break up my family. And that's hard for them. They feel betrayed just as much as your spouse does oftentimes, sometimes more. What will it do to my job? A lot of you, it wouldn't affect your jobs. But as a pastor, I would lose my income. All the time I did preparing to go into the ministry would be gone in just that quick. Because I would no longer be qualified to be here. What would it do to some of you who put your trust in me as your pastor? And there would be people who may even just fall away from God or not walk with him anymore. Their marriages may be in trouble. Uh, They've stayed together simply because they've looked at our example and it's not there anymore. And I write, wrote all those things down. I had a bigger list than that. But it, it affects so many people. You shall not commit adultery. It's pretty clear. And as we look at the effects, they are numerous. I, I looked at another person's suggestions of how to get it right. And, and number one begins before you're married. And I would tell you, if you're a parent today, you need to teach your children this. If you are not married, you need to see this for yourself. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be bound together with an unbeliever. For what partnership have the righteousness with lawlessness? And what fellowship has light with darkness? New International Version, King James Version, don't be yoked together with an unbeliever. And I would say that has to do more with the fact that they just say, oh, yeah, I'm a believer, to the fact that do they really live for the Lord? Do they really love God? Because it's very easy for somebody to say, I believe. Oh, yeah, let's get married. I believe. And then when they get married, they really weren't committed to begin with, and you're still rather unequally yoked or not bound together where you should be. And so be careful about that. I, I would say with your young people, tell them to be careful who they date. Very easy to just go out with people who may not really be committed to Jesus Christ. And you don't know what's going to happen with your emotions because you can fall all over in love with that person. And say, oh, I've just got to be married. I can't stand it. Truly committed Christians. Center your marriage on Christ. Number two, be devoted or devote yourselves to his word. Make spiritual growth a priority in your relationship. Follow the biblical principles number three to improve your marriage, to make it stronger. Don't ever be satisfied with where you are. Make it better. You know, God didn't call us to be involved in marriages that are boring and ugly, and we don't want to be there. But I got to be there because I'm a Christian. He wants us to have vital, active marriages where we're working to improve our relationship with one another and be stronger and have a better marriage. Make your spouse your priority. We have a lot of priorities in life, but uh, whether it's your church or your job or your kids, they need to know that you are committed to your spouse first. I I believe that being a minister is a priority for me, but I'll tell you what, the Bible says, if I don't have it right with my wife, I'm not supposed to be here. So that's got to be a priority. You make that a priority. Meet the physical and emotional and sexual needs of your spouse. That's number five. I think that's important that we get to know them and get to know what their needs and then avoid tempting relationships that can lead you into that. It may be something on the job, spending too much time with somebody of the opposite sex that you just really have gotten to like. And so you be careful. Be careful. Now let me just say, as I as I close this service, divorce is not the impardonable sin. God says he forgives all things. And you go to the Lord, and you are truly remorseful, and you are sorry for what you've done. And I'll tell you what, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And and you get a new start with God. But I'm going to give you a warning. You may get the new start with God. But it won't necessarily change the results of your physical relationship down here. Doesn't mean that God's necessarily going to force your spouse to stay with you. Or that everything's going to be perfect between you and your kids. God forgives. Uh, John chapter 8, we see the story of the woman that was caught in adultery and she was brought to Jesus. verses 3 through 11, it says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. We don't know who she was caught with, if she was a harlot. We don't know if she had a relationship with some of the others that were bringing her. We don't know the background there. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then, shall, then do you say? And, and they really didn't care about her. They were trying to trap Jesus. And they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down, and with a finger he wrote in the ground on the ground, When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said, Well, he who is without sin, the one who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. And the woman, where she was in the center of the court, Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, uh, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. Go from now on. And this is a key term go and from now on, sin no more. Don't continue on in those relationships that aren't right. God forgives. But it doesn't change everything for us here on earth. God will remove the guilt. He can give your spouse back the ability to regain trust. And our kids may forgive. So it goes there. But I want you to realize God forgives you. I found this poem this week. I'm reading a book on finishing strong. An older book I have. How do you finish the race? How do you finish strong? This is entitled The Race. Let me read it to you because I think it's important and it goes along with what we're talking about this morning. It says, whenever I start to hang my head in the front of failure's face, my downward fall is broken by the memory of the race. A children's race, young boys, young men. (laughs) How I remember well. Excitement, sure, but also fear wasn't hard to tell. They all lined up so full of hope, each one to win that race or tie for first or, if not that, at least to take second place. Their parents watched from off the side, each cheering for their son, and each boy hoped to show his folks that he would be the one. The whistle blew, and off they flew like chariots of fire. To win, to be the hero there, was each boy's desire. One boy in particular, whose dad was in the crowd, was running in the lead and thought, my dad will be so proud. But as he speeded down the field and crossed a shallow dip, the little boy, who thought he'd win, lost his step and slipped. Trying hard to catch him, his arms flew everywhere, and amidst the laughter of the crowd, he fell flat on his face. And as he fell, his hope fell too, he couldn't win it now. Humiliated, he just wished to disappear somehow. But as he fell, his dad stood up and showed him his anxious face, which to the boy so clearly said, Get up! Win that race! And he quickly rose, no damage done. Behind a bit, that's all, and, and ran with all his mind and might to make up for his fall, so anxious to restore himself, to catch up and to win. His mind went faster than his legs, and He slipped and fell again. He wished that he'd quit before with only one disgrace. I'm hopeless as a runner now. I shouldn't try to race. But through the laughing crowd, he searched and found his father's face with a steady look that said again, get up and win that race. And so he jumped up to try again, 10 yards behind the last. If I'm to gain those yards, he thought I've got to run real fast. Exceeding everything he had, he regained eight, then ten, but trying hard to catch the lead, he slipped and he fell again. Defeat. He lay there silently, a tear dropped from his eyes. No sense in running anymore. Three strikes, I'm out. Why try? I've lost, so what's the use? He thought. I, I'll live with my disgrace. But then he thought about his dad, who soon he'd have to face. Get up, an echo sounded low. You haven't lost at all, for all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. Get up, the echo urged him on. Get up and take your place. You were not meant for failure here. Get up and win that race. So up he rose to run once more, refusing to forfeit. And he resolved to win or lose, that win or lose, at least he wouldn't quit. And so far behind the others now, the most he'd ever been. Still, he gave it all he had and ran like he could to win. Three times he had fallen, stumbling. Three times he rose again, too far behind to hope to win. He still ran to the end. They cheered another boy who crossed the line and won first place. Head high and proud with and happy, no falling, no disgrace, but when the fallen youngster crossed the line in last place, the crowd gave him a greater cheer for finishing the race, and even though he came in last with head bowed low, unproud, he would have had you would have thought he had won the race to listen to the crowd, and to his dad he sadly said to his dad he sadly said. I didn't do so well. Oh, to me you won, his father said. You rose each time you fell. And now when things seem dark and bleak and difficult to face, the memory of that little boy helps me in my own race. For all of life is like that race with ups and downs and all. And all you have to do is win- to win is rise each time you fall. And when depression and despair shout loudly in my face, another voice within me says, Get up and win that race. You see, I think that's the message this morning. I can tell you what the Bible says about unfaithfulness, destroying trust, adultery. And we're humans, and sometimes circumstances happen that we wish hadn't. But we know God loves us, and God forgives, and that's where it starts. And when you've fallen, the key is to get up. It's how you finish. It's not necessarily how you started or how you ran in between, but it's how you finish the race is important. And if you get up each time and you turn back to the Lord and you move into the direction he would have you to move, that's when God blesses you and helps you to run strong and finish as God would have you to finish. Today, it's not where we've been. It's not even where we are, but it's where we'll be tomorrow that's important. So take the message uh, God gave it because it was important. We need to understand the faithfulness. We need to understand the oneness that's to be in there in our relationships, the longevity that God desires for us. But we also need to understand that when we struggle and we fall, we get up and we continue on under the strength of God and we finish the race that he called us to do. Let's pray, shall we? Father, it's kind of a hard message. It's a hard message because... Sometimes we look back and say, I wish it hadn't worked out that way. I wish that hadn't happened. I, I... But wishing doesn't change things. But you forgive. And you're there like that dad with open arms. Get up. Finish the race. Move on from today knowing the mistakes you've made and be successful through the rest of your life. I would pray that for each of us here, not necessarily even just with the physical relationship, but in every aspect of our life, that when we slip and we fall, that we look up and we see you and we see your face and say, well, this is what God wants. And we get up and we ask your forgiveness. We come with true remorse, Father, because it doesn't do any good just to say, hey, forgive me. We come with repentant hearts and we help you to restore our lives. And give us the strength we need to run the race that is before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you, Father, for your forgiveness. Thank you for the message. I pray for each relationship here that you would just give strength to husbands and wives. And for relationships that will be in the future. And that you would give us the strength to run the race as you would have us to faithful to the end. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.